book of Acts, history of the church, written by this man named Luke, same writer as the Gospel of Luke, a doctor, has recorded this for a man named Theophilus, which is kind of cool, that uh, is a name that means lover of God, and he's writing a history, he's recording a history, not the acts of the apostles so much as we're learning the acts of the Holy Spirit. And we're seeing some things develop as we go through chapter 12, will really focus us on prayer. And if you've been with us through the whole time, we're titling this study, Discovering the Holy Spirit in the Book of Acts. As I was preparing yesterday and, and previous days, I just was reminded of and saw this theme, really these two parallel themes, the presence of the Word of God and the presence of prayer. These are two things that as we're studying about the Holy Spirit, it's not surprising to me, these are the two things that we see the church engaged in, prayer and teaching of the Word prayer and preaching of the Word. The things of God are not complicated. Cell phones are complicated. All this internet stuff is complicated. We need our children to help us with these things. Kids know this stuff like it's a piece of cake, but thankfully the things of God are not complicated. They're not confusing or disorienting or somehow dark and unable to be understood. It's right there for us to understand. The challenge the church has is not knowing what we should do. The challenge we have is doing it. And God lays it out there. He says, church, I'm going to give it to you simple. You do these things, you'll experience the power of the Holy Spirit for yourself. You'll experience these things. We've turned a corner in the book of Acts. We see now a center for Christian growth has been set up in Antioch. That church in Antioch, still part of the one church. There's the church that centered originally in Jerusalem, had a very much a Jewish flavor. It was all Jews that were being saved, being brought to Christ. They, they were, you know, the Holy Spirit poured out there at Pentecost in Jerusalem. But then the gospel spreads to the Gentiles, and they don't have to become Jews first. They're Greek-speaking and not Aramaic-speaking. They're Greek culture, not Jewish culture. And yet, they're all one church. And so this new center of Christianity is now up in Antioch, 300 miles from Jerusalem. And there are still many in Jerusalem that are not sure about God saving people without them becoming Jews, like saving them right where they are, saving them just as they are, that still, it's not going to sit well with a lot. And this will culminate in Acts chapter 15. So stick around and we'll see how this works out. But in the meantime, verse 27 of chapter 11 says that in these days, these days of the, the church tr experiencing tremendous growth there up in these Gentile areas, in these Greek areas, in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. That famine is uh, historically recorded. Verse 29 says, Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So Barnabas, we remember, this is the son, this is the guy who's the encouraging guy. He had been sent from Jerusalem up to Antioch to check out things, and he, and he was there ministering. He brings Saul, or who we know as the Apostle Paul, there teaching for a year. This prophet comes up, he says, hey, God showed me there's going to be a famine. It happens. And the church in Antioch, this Greek-speaking, Greek-cultured church, says, hey, 
we see that our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem are going through some hard times, are about to go through some hard times. They're going to be experiencing uh, some lack, some need. They're going to have a famine. And we've got to help them. So they build a bridge through benevolence. They build a bridge. So you guys don't know this. I'll tell you this. This church, you guys, we've helped two other churches build their church buildings. Because we know what it went and took to go through building our church building. So we see other churches going, yeah, we're struggling to have the money. Some churches are smaller. And we say, hey, we can come alongside and help you. Just through finances sometimes, it's a great way to say, we just, we feel your pain. You know, when one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. But see, churches can tend to get so independently minded, especially, and I'll tell you this, the two other churches we helped, neither of them were Calvary chapels. And I hope you understand, we don't go around you know, advertising these things, but this is just the heart of Calvary Chapel Fluvanna because we recognize and want to promote the oneness of the body of Christ. You may have a different name on the sign at your church, and we may even have some doctrinal differences here and there. But at the end of the day, you're preaching Christ, and we're preaching Christ, and we've seen all throughout the Bible, you know, these, these arguments that come, well, they're, they're, they're baptizing over there, and we're baptizing over here, and we're not sure. Hey, we've got to chill out about these things. I'm not saying we should be soft on doctrine. But what I'm saying is we need to be large on grace. And so this church in Antioch, says, you know what, how can we see our brothers in need and shut up our hearts from them? And you want to bet, when that money came rolling in with Barnabas and Saul, they come back down to Jerusalem, they got this pocket full of money. Notice no, no single person was sent by themselves, there was accountability, and they trusted Barnabas. So these guys get sent down and they bring this collection to the church in Jerusalem, who's already got an issue with them with their Greek culture, and we don't really think that they're, we're not even sure they're really saved, or whatever they might be thinking. And then this money comes. Do you know how humbled they must have been? You ever had that experience, someone you're speaking bad about, or someone you're speaking against, and then they reach out to help you, and you're like, oh, I feel like a jerk. And they recognize, you're 300 miles away, but we're one church. And it's not just about denomination. At that time, there was no Baptist, or Methodist, or any of that stuff. There was just the church. So I love that passage. It was one more thing to point out before we move on. Verse 29 says, Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. They had an ability. They determined to send relief. And then what happened? Verse 30 says, This they also did. You have to first make a determination to do it. They heard the news. They said, We have to determine to do this. You don't do anything you don't determine to do. They could have talked about it all day long. They could have made plans to do it. But they determined that it would get done, and someone followed through. Someone said, hey, we've got to get this done. And they did it. And that's how things work in your life, right? You're never going to get anything done in your life that you don't determine to do. And giving is one of those things. First part of the month or so, however it works out for you, you have to just determine to do it, and then you do it. You just make the plan, you put the things into place. If you need accountability, you get that, but you make it happen. God doesn't need your money. But you need to recognize that money is not your God. And so one of the ways that God helps get people over greed uh, is by fostering generosity. God takes people who are typically takers, and he makes them givers. That's one of the most miraculous things about the work of God in people's lives. 
So while this is going on, verse 1 of chapter 12 says, Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. This is not Herod the Great who was involved in the killing of the babies born around Christmas time, that whole story, the babies in, that were being born. This is not his son. This is his grandson, Herod Agrippa I. His sister was Herodias. If you know the story of how John the Baptist was beheaded in prison, Herodias was behind that. That was this guy's sister. So his grandfather was Herod the Great. He was half Jewish. And you'll have to know that he had a real zeal for Judaism, a real affinity for Jerusalem and the things of Judaism. So they sort of tentatively accepted him as their king, although a lot of people weren't real happy with him. But it's this Herod the king, Herod Agrippa I, that he stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Now what brings this on, we don't know for sure. Why he decides to do this, we can't be certain other than his relationship with the Jews at the time. Remember, the Jews probably are not real happy about what's going on with this Gentile arm of the church. Not many of them would be a little upset about that. And Herod wanted to please them. Now notice, back in chapter 11, verse 21, you'll have to read it, I'll read it to you. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number were believing and turning to the Lord. So we have the hand of the Lord operating on one side. But there's an opposing, a competing hand, isn't there? And that's the hand of human government. The hand of Herod the king, who is also, that is also being stretched out to harm. So God is building, others are trying to tear down. And so most of the persecution that the church has experienced has been religious in nature. The Jews were upset because the apostles were preaching Jesus and the resurrection, and so they were coming against them for that. And so a lot of it was religiously based. But now we see in chapter 12, we see politically based persecution. This was a political move for Herod Agrippa. He wanted to have favor with the Jews, so he does something to earn that. And so throughout Christian history, we've seen politically motivated persecution. And guess what? We're still here. We're still here. So the big question in their minds, the big thing that Luke is writing this about is so what happens when the state persecutes Christians? What happens when the government persecutes Christians? Can God handle that? And the answer in chapter 12 is absolutely God can handle that. How does he stretch out his hand? What does he do? Verse 2 is kind of um, jaw-dropping. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Stephen had already been martyred. The apostles had sort of been protected for a time. But now that protection seems to end and James becomes the first of the twelve, the apostles, to be martyred. And not only was he just one of the guys, he wasn't one of the obscure guys. He was one of Jesus' inner group. Peter, James, and John. James and John, the sons of Zebedee. James and John, hey Jesus, you want, to call, want us to call fire down from heaven and burn those guys up when they won't accept you? This is James and John, the, the two fishermen, the sons of Zebedee, the guys that said, hey, when you come into your kingdom, can we sit on your right hand and your left hand? And Jesus says, oh, be careful what you ask for. This is that James. So was God sleeping? How does God let this happen? These are questions that people in the church have asked over the years and over the ages. Is How does God let this happen to his people? James is killed by, he's probably beheaded. And you can bet God was not asleep. 
I'm sure this rattles the church. I'm sure this causes a wave of fear, a wave of confusion, a wave of doubt to go through. How did this happen? What do we do now? Remember, everybody else had abandoned ship, you know, headed out of Jerusalem during the persecution of the Apostle Saul. But the Apostles stayed there and had been somewhat at ease, but now things change. Verse 3 says, and because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. So it seems like Herod is just going to knock him off one at a time. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread, that's the Passover. So when he'd arrested him, he put him in prison, what was known as the Antonia Fortress there in Jerusalem. And he delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover, probably again to have him executed. So they've got this one guy, and he's guarded by four squads of soldiers. They knew his history. They know, yeah, we had him in prison before, and he escaped. That ain't happening again. This guy's, you know, like, these guys dangerous. You know, he's, he's like Houdini or something. So verse 5 says, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. You know, sometimes you can feel so powerless in your life. You feel like, well, what can we do about these things? What can, you know, what can we possibly do? What effect can we have? And we are such doers, aren't we? We are fixers and movers and shakers and Americans. We love to make things happen. And so our idea of doing something is being busy. We'd have been picketing outside Herod's palace. You know, we'd have been picketing outside the prison. Let Peter go. Let Peter go. We'd have petitions being signed. We'd have all kinds of activism going on. We'd be demanding Peter's rights. We'd be doing all that. And not that any of that is wrong in and of itself. But we neglect the most important thing, and that is prayer. And I'm not saying just, hey, we prayed about it. What's it say right there? Not just, hey, we offered up a prayer. It says, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. If I'm in trouble, I pray that constant prayer is offered for me by the church. If you're in trouble, isn't that what you want? If you have a sickness, if you're going through something, if you're in need, don't you want to be part of a church where constant prayer is being offered for you? Is that the kind of church you're part of? Is that this church? The word constant is the word ectenis in Greek. It means fervent. Another translation is fervent or to stretch something out. To stretch it out. That's how I felt at Thanksgiving dinner. I'm going to stretch this out. This is fine. I, I'm enjoying myself. Round two, ding. You know, let's, let's, I want this to last. You ever have a good meal like that? You just want that thing to last, to stretch out. Not just an individual single prayer, but constant prayer. Stress. They didn't just pray one. It was an ongoing thing. The church was praying for him over, over the course of time while he was in prison. If you'd like to take notes, just notice from this chapter, one thing that you can write about prayer is that prayer is supposed to be constant. Stretched out. Luke 18.1, Jesus tells a parable. Oftentimes the parables are confusing. This parable he tells, and he tells you why he's telling you this parable before he tells you, which is great because then you don't have to wonder, wonder what this parable's about. He tells you this parable is so that people learn to pray and not lose heart. Why? Because God knows we pray and lose heart. We give up. 
So he says, I want to tell this parable because I want my people to know to pray and to never give up. So here's the parable. It's about a judge. And this judge doesn't care about God. And this judge doesn't care about people. And this woman comes to him for justice. And she comes and she keeps coming. She's a widow. Ah, You know, he doesn't care about people. He just wants his paycheck and to get home and to get out on his yacht or whatever he wants. He doesn't care about God, doesn't care about people. But she keeps coming to him. She won't leave him alone. She wears him down. And finally, he gives her what she's asking to. Why? Because of her continual coming. That's what the parable says. That's what Jesus, that's Jesus' story. And so he goes on to give some more explanation in this parable. The point isn't that we wear out God to get God to do what we want. The point is, if a human judge who doesn't care about God and doesn't care about people can be swayed by persistence, then how much more a God who loves his people and wants to do good for his people can be moved by persistence? But how does that, what about God's will and... You know, prayer is one of those things that I wish I could understand better, but I just don't. But I don't have to understand it to engage in it. What I'm understanding here and from Luke 18 is that God honors persistence in prayer. Now, were they praying when James was arrested? I don't know. I imagine that they were. Maybe James gets arrested, he gets killed, and they're struggling in their prayer time, like you have, like I have. You've prayed about stuff, it didn't happen. What you thought should happen, didn't happen. And we're left to just trust in the faithfulness of God and the sovereignty of God. And I don't understand how this all happens. And Job says, who are we to accept good from the Lord and not affliction? So all these things somehow work into this, but I see the church constantly praying and I see God saying to me, Steve, I think about water and rock. Which do we consider stronger, water or rock? We would consider rock to be stronger than water, but it's through persistence that water wears away the stone. And it's through persistence in prayer in your life. Not that you wear away God, but that we bring about His will. How does that work? I don't know, but go ahead and test it. Go ahead and try it. Because it's not always God that's changed in prayer. You and I know that, right? Sometimes it's us. Sometimes it's my big, hard heart that's worn away by persistence in prayer. Verse 6 says, And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Notice that also. It's the night before Peter's going to be executed. Man, I'd be a wreck probably. But Peter is cool as a cucumber. He's sleeping, about to get executed. He's probably, knowing the faith of these guys, knowing what they've seen, welcoming the opportunity to go to be with the Lord. Maybe he's praying, ah, James is so lucky. That dog, he's with the Lord now. We get a twisted perspective, right? You know, to be absent from the body, to be present from the Lord, Peter's probably going, man, I'm, I'm ready to see the Lord. I'm ready to be with him. He's being guarded. He's got chains on his hands. He's between two soldiers. He's probably been telling them about Jesus all day long. They're probably tired of hearing about it. Now verse 7 is amazing. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him and a light shone in the prison. So all of a sudden, this light shines in the prison. 
and he struck, punched Peter on the side and raised him up saying, arise quickly. So Peter's fast asleep and the light comes on and that does Peter's like a teenager. You turn the light on, they're still out. He, he's not waking up. And he's sleeping right through it. And so he's got to punch him in the side, like, you know, whack him. Peter, get up, arise quickly. And so Peter's kind of groggy and he starts to wake up and, and he goes, well, I can't get up because I got these. Oh, and it says the chains fell off of his hands. Wait a second. Chain, they just, they became ineffective. They just dropped off. I mean, how, it's miraculous. Then the angel said to him, Okay, Peter, step two, gird yourself and put your shoes on, tie on your sandals. And so he did. So Peter's just following instructions here. He's half asleep, no doubt. Okay, next step, Peter, put on your garment and follow me. So he's getting just step-by-step instructions. You know how it is when you're woken up from a deep, deep sleep. You're just sort of groggy and confused. And so Peter's trying to figure out what in the world is going on. He thinks he's dreaming. And so the angel is kind of instructing him through all this. And it's a good thing because otherwise he'd have been really embarrassed when he was out on the street there without shoes on and without his jacket on. He'd have been in a bad, bad way. So the angel gets him all ready. Verse 9 says, So he went out and followed him and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. Just like he had with the, the food on the blanket coming down when he was sort of in this trance. He thinks, ah, it's just another one of those visions. Just another one of those things I'm, I'm going through. When they were past the first and second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. Literally, the Greek word means automatically. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself... He said, now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. Pretty miraculous. Pretty amazing. Um, There are many people in history, there are many Christians in prisons right now that read this story or know this story and go, Lord, what about me? There's many Christians who have died in prisons, never having been released. There's many Christians who their churches have prayed for them. We've prayed for them. And yet they don't get released. Now we've seen also many people released from prison by political means, by you know bartering and things like that through, through using ambassadors and, and whatnot. We've seen people released from prison. There's a fellow from Calvary Chapel in Boise, Idaho that was imprisoned. I think that was in Iran. And he was released not too long ago. But there are occasions... And I draw your attention to the book, The Heavenly Man. Have you ever read that book, The Heavenly Man, about Brother Yun, who was part of the Christian house church movement in China? He experienced this very thing. I read the book. He was miraculously set free from prison, walked out as if the guards didn't even see him. The gates opened automatically, and he was freed. The guy that helped him write the book, I said, you know, let me just corroborate this, because I don't like to give you something that is, well, I mean, Snope says, well, it really didn't happen. It was a scam. The book's still out there. You can read it. And uh, the guy that was the author interviewed not just Brother Yun, who escaped from prison, but also interviewed pastors that had been in prison with him, and also interviewed the people whose house he went to as soon as he'd gotten out. And so did all these interviews to confirm the truth about this guy's escape from prison, not by his own efforts, but the Lord released him. 
And we're stuck with this question in our minds of why does James get beheaded and Peter get released? Why does this person get healed and that person dies? I wish I could answer those questions. I always lean on two things. That God is absolutely loving. He is absolutely loving. I never, ever, ever question God's love. Sometimes it's hard to understand. Sometimes we don't quite make it out because our idea of love is very self-centered love. Love for us is that God does for us what we want Him to do for us. But God's love operates from a bigger picture. And we don't always understand the bigger picture. So I trust. Number one, I trust in God's love. If He wasn't loving, then how do you know what He's going to do? But we know. There's unquestionable things. God is love, right? We don't question that. God is love. It's what He says. So we go with that. The second thing that I always go back to is He's just. When I'm preaching at a funeral, I don't understand. You know, it's a young child. It's a, it's a bad accident. And I go, why is God? Why did God allow this? I don't know. I don't know. But here's what I know. God is all loving and he is all powerful and he's just. So maybe that's three things I trust in. He's all loving. He's all powerful and he's just. And, and I just leave it in his hands. I don't try to figure it out. And so Peter comes to himself. He's dressed, thankfully. And he says, now I know that the Lord has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectations, his demise, literally plucked out. He had been plucked out of Herod's hand. Oh, I love to see people get plucked out of Satan's hands. Because you know, not all chains are physical. Not all bondages are connected to a physical prison. There's a lot of people who live in chains of addiction in bondage of religions, religious practices, and all that kind of stuff. And to see people plucked out from the hands of addiction, from the hands of the devil, from the hands of Satan, from the hands of the world, and the world system. Beautiful thing. And the Lord does that. Peter didn't do it by himself. He didn't dig a tunnel underneath. The Lord set him free. There's no way around it. So when he had considered this, He came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark. We meet John Mark as we go through the book of Acts further. He considered this. He came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. Notice that. Not only was prayer constant and continual, but prayer was also collective. Prayer was collective. We have a culture that honors individualism. I'm going to do it myself. And we consider asking others for help to be weakness. I'm not going to ask for help. I'm going to take care of this myself. And do you know how hard it is for people to come and ask for help? I'm just going to do it myself. And those that study these things in terms of around the whole world, our culture, American culture, is at the highest in terms of individuality. We're higher than European countries. We think more individually than any other nation on the planet right now. And we don't think very collectively, which means we think in terms of ourselves as independent from a group. Matter of fact, we honor not needing a group when reality, we really do. And so it hurts us. In some ways, that part of our culture hurts us 
and keeps us from things that would be beneficial to us. And that's why America is not only the most individually thinking culture in the world, we're also the most medicated. And someone's got to say, what's the deal? And Jesus didn't die on the cross so you could be cultural. He died to set you free from culturalism so you could live according to what His Word says. And here I see not just a couple people, but many were gathered together. They were gathered together. Can I say that again? They were gathered together for prayer. They weren't gathered together for an agape meal, although maybe they ate together. I'm sure that they did. But the primary thing is they were gathered together for prayer. Because you and I say, well, you know, what's the difference if I pray by myself or I pray with other people? We're talking about God's will and how does, does 10 people, is that more powerful than two people? Is 100 people? What about a prayer chain? That's why I would title this message from Acts 12, prison chains and prayer chains. A prayer chain? Yeah, that's a group of people praying together, linking arms. Ephesians chapter 6, put on all the armor of God. And he pictures, Paul does these Greek soldiers, these Roman soldiers, and they've got all the armor and they've got their shields. And then when you put on all that armor, what do you do? You pray. Not individually, you pray together. The Roman army was strong because with their shields, they interlocked their shields together and they made an impenetrable wall. And that was why that was so powerful. That formation was so powerful because each shield overlapped the other by half and nothing could penetrate that. And then they had guys in the back with shields over their heads for the arrows that were flying in. So the strength of that army was dependent on its collectivity, the collectiveness of it. Chrysostom, John Chrysostom, 400 AD, said, what we cannot obtain by solitary prayer, we may by social. Because where our individual strength fails, there union and concord are effectual. And many other quotes I read say that you can really determine the heart and the strength of a church, not by its Bible study attendance or its potluck attendance, but by its prayer attendance. And I will tell you, Calvary Chapel, Fluvanna, we have Sunday night prayer, first Sunday of the month, and we have men's prayer every Saturday morning, and I'm sure there's other corporate prayer meetings. They're some of the least attended things that we have at the church. And that's been for years. I can tell you my own testimony in my own life, our Saturday morning men's prayer meeting, that's been going on for about 17 years. Continually. Dave, I just look, Dave, you, you remember, we've been part of that prayer for so long. My life, communal prayer, corporate prayer has been part of my life since I became a Christian. And I think it should be part of yours too. It's just assumed in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul's talking about praying in tongues. And is one of the problems with praying in an unknown language is the people you're praying with won't understand what you're saying. How can they say amen? And the assumption is you're praying with other people. And week after week, the prayer room over here would say, hey, come down and receive prayer. And it largely stays empty. And God says, you know, that, that's up to you. But I'm telling you, and I'm giving you this testimony in, in Acts chapter 12, that not only was prayer constant, but it was collective. They, are, they were people that got together to pray together. You know, you got the sweaty hands and you hold hands and it's uncomfortable. And prayer is intimate, isn't it? But there's a lot of things that happen when we get together and pray together. Things that don't happen in a church when we have Bible study together. Things that don't happen in a church when we just have a potluck together. 
There is a unity and a strength and a power that happens in a church when that church prays together. I mean, we've got, I don't know how many people call Calvary Chapel home at this point. We don't keep track of that kind of stuff. 600, 700, 800, I don't know how many people. But our Sunday night prayers, you know, 25, 30. I'm not trying to condemn. I'm just saying to say to us as a church, I want to see the power of God work among us. One of the challenges we have in church life now is because in America, individualism is high priority and collectivism is low priority and we, we don't want to go over to others for help, is that we then, because we don't see the power of God, we have to have concerts and create enthusiasm because we're not obeying the Lord. And so we try to create it in other areas and it's fun and it works and it creates enthusiasm. But when the Spirit of God is on the move, the door is being opened through corporate prayer and through the preaching and teaching of the Word of God, you don't need fancy light shows and concert atmosphere. The Spirit of God does all the work and people are just caught up in that. And it's not funky or kooky or weird. It's powerful. So powerful that people get set free. That's the kind of power I want to see. But we pray once and we go about our business and we stay isolated and we wonder, well, why isn't God showing up? My question is, why aren't you? Verse 13 is a hoot. Watch this. As Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. So she gets up during the prayer meeting. That's allowed. You can get up during the prayer meeting, go to the bathroom, whatever you need. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. She hears, she hears hey, open up. It's me. It's Peter. And she goes, Oh, it's Peter. Hey, guys, it's Peter. And he's like, wait, let me in. They're coming for me. You know, they're going to they're gonna figure out I'm missing, and they're going to come for me. So he's knocking at the door. This is hysterical. I mean, this is really funny. So she goes in. She tells everybody, guys, they're, they're all praying. Leave us alone. We're praying. Guys, Peter's at the door. No, no, leave us alone. We're praying for Peter. Get, get, stop interrupting us. She runs in. She announced that Peter's standing at the gate. Look at verse 15. But they said to her, you're crazy. You're literally the word is uh, where we get the word maniac. You're mad. You're beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said it's his angel and they believed in guardian angels. And I don't want to get into that now. But the point of this is, is they're praying for Peter while he's in prison. Peter gets released and they don't believe it. Now, you know that experience. You've prayed for something and it happens and you're like, no way. God answered my prayer. You can't hardly believe that it happened. I'm like that too. I struggle with being a man of faith. You know, I struggle with believing these things, even though I'm praying like, you know, there's that little thing in your heart that you go, is he really going to do it? Like I'm praying for it, but I'm not sure I really believe he's going to do it. They prayed constantly. They prayed collectively, but I don't think that they always prayed with certainty. Do you? I know I don't. Aren't we glad that God doesn't answer our prayers based on the magnitude of our faith, but the magnitude of his power? He says, if you would just exercise, if you have faith like a mustard seed and you act on that, you can move mountains. Just itty bitty, teeny, weak seed of faith and you exercise that. Just showing up for a prayer meeting takes faith. Just praying. People that don't believe, don't pray. Because why would you? Praying puts yourself in a dependent posture to God. 
praying, you're saying, God, I can't, but you can. You got to put your pride aside to pray like that, to, to do that. Prayer is an act of faith, and people that do not have faith in God do not pray. And sometimes even those that do have faith in God struggle with believing that God's really going to do it. And we believe that he can, and we admit that, but we don't always believe that he will. And that's why he says, don't give up. Don't give up. Now, Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent. I mean, sure, can you imagine the stir that went up? It's Peter. He's here. It's Peter. I mean, we were praying that you wouldn't be in that much pain when he cut your head off. That's what we were praying for. And you notice God does that too. He doesn't always answer the prayer just like you prayed it. You prayed for one thing and says, God says, I got something better. They were astonished. So he says, okay, guys, be quiet. And he declares to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he tells the whole story. And he said, go tell these things to James, not James, the brother of John. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus. Go tell these things to James and the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. So he says, hey, maybe because of James being beheaded, maybe the church is struggling with where's God? And maybe the church is challenged by you know, trusting in the Lord. And so he says, I want you to go and tell the others. James becomes kind of the leader of the church there in Jerusalem. And I want you to go tell him what God did. That's why it's important for you because we see all the testimonies of what God didn't do. You have to share the stories of your life where God does heal, where he does set free because that encourages, it builds people up. And we don't know if God's going to do it or not, but we know he can and we know he does. But we know he can and does according to his love and his power and his will, not according to mine. And as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers because of what had become of Peter. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And when you were a uh, prison guard, if you let one of your prisoners free, you got whatever sentence they were supposed to get. So if they were supposed to get the death sentence and you blew it, you let them go, you fell asleep on your watch, then you got their punishment. So the guards who were, poor, these poor guys were like, ah, we did our best. They get put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Verse 20 says, now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. That is in Lebanon, up to the north of Jerusalem, but south of Antioch. We don't know what he was angry about. Don't know what had happened. But the people of Tyre and Sidon were dependent on Herod for their supplies. They came to him with one accord and having made Blastus the king's personal aid, their friend, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So they're having to appeal to this guy because of need. They don't really like him, but they need him. Beware of flattery in your life. Sometimes people don't necessarily like you, but they need something you got. So they'll tell you what they need to tell you. They're just manipulating you. Verse 21 so on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. Josephus tells us he was wearing a royal robe that was of all silver 
And when he walked out, the sun was at full brightness and shining on his silver garment, and it was just shining so bright, just brilliant in its glory. Verse 22, and the people kept shouting, the voice of God and not of a man. And that was not an uncommon thing to call a, a world leader a god. The Caesars were considered gods and worshipped as gods, and the pharaohs were considered gods and worshipped as gods. And so they loved, oh, you want to talk about an ego trip. Man, when you're in power and people say, you're, you're God. Oh, yes, tell me more about me. No doubt, feeding, totally feeding the ego. As they shout, the voice of a God and not of man. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. And look at verse 24. But the word of God grew and multiplied. So this world ruler they were worried about, this world ruler that was coming against the church, is that a challenge to the church? No. World rulers come and go. But the word of God endures forever. By the way, if you like to know about these things, Josephus records this same event. He was a historian, a Jewish historian at this time, and he gets his information from Herod's court historian, and he records the death of, of Herod Agrippa. Interestingly, Herod Agrippa knew that people didn't like him and that he knew his death was coming, so he arranged for these Jewish elders to be gathered at the Hippodrome in Jericho, and on the day that he died, those that served him were supposed to put to death all of these Jewish elders so that the nation would mourn on the day that he died. Sick man, huh? He wanted to guarantee that people would be sad when he died. And so he made sure all these wonderfully loved elders would be killed. Now, when he died, they didn't carry it out. Josephus tells us he struggled for five days. Those that look on these things medically say that what was Agrippa's problem, he likely had a kidney infection that led to internal gangrene, a specific type of gangrene called Fournier's gangrene, which sets itself up in the genitals. Now that's what you needed to know before lunch today. But that gangrene connected to a kidney infection, there are people in the medical field that study these things in the Bible. And that's why I said he was eaten by worms. Kids love this story. Eaten by worms. Because we read the Bible and go, Could that really, did that really happen? Medically, absolutely. It's documented uh, that these, things, these types of things happen. So the Welsh revival was started by two women praying together. Praying, Lord, bend me. That was the prayer that started the Welsh Revival. Lord, bend me. Will we be a church of corporate prayer? You need to share a testimony? Yeah. Oh, okay. I, I don't do testimonies. I don't feel comfortable up here and all that kind of stuff. But this really struck home. Um, several years ago, I was diagnosed with cancer, a huge tumor in my abdomen. And through my surgery, my surgeon, all kind of stuff, he said that I stood a really good chance almost 100% certain I come out with two colostomy bags, which totally destroyed my life at that time. This church has prayed for me for months and months and months. And my belief is that through this collective prayer is that I did come out of surgery just fine. Um, cancer's gone. I don't have any colostomy bags. But what convinced me is that my doctor told me he said you are my miracle patient he said i've never done this before never seen this before so that is the 
living proof of the, the power of prayer through this church. You know, it's, it's real. It, it exists. And we all do it either individually through prayer chains or just at home or collectively here. But prayer works. Right here. Amen. Amen. Amen.